Well, hey there, fellow Sojourners, and welcome back to another edition of Appropriate in the Culture. On today's episode, we're back from making a film to criticizing films with this year's Oscar rundown. Yes, we watched the Oscar nom, so you don't have to. I'm Pastor Shane, I'll be your Oscar snub today as we appropriate some culture. So the Oscars came and went with no one being slapped, though God knows they deserved it. We'll start with my least favorite of the noms, Women Talking, which, if I'm not mistaken, is the unofficial sequel to the 1897 classic Pillow Fight. The spiritual connection is obvious, literal brutalism of title followed with very little plot or artistic merit. If what you're looking for is a film in which women talk, have I got a film for you. But the problem with the movie is that truth in advertising is the only truthful aspect of it, which is surprising given the germ of the ideas based on real events. A Mennonite colony in Bolivia had a serial rape scandal. Basically, in the colony, men sprayed animal anesthetic into open windows, which sedated the entire household, and then they would take advantage of the women. Eventually, they got caught, and the colony elders called the local police to help deal with the issue. There was a trial, and seven of the men were sentenced to 25 years in prison for rape. But in this fictional world, the revelation of sexual abuse prompts the titular discussion in which these women must decide whether to stay and do nothing, to stay and fight, or to flee. And every single note of it rings false. If your entire film is centered on women talking, then it's a good idea to have them sound like real women. Fourth wave feminism spewing out of the mouth of an Amish lady is not something you're going to find in reality. And so, too, these women in basically a religious cult are not going to share the same worldview as some purple-haired woman studies major from Berkeley. Everything felt false. I don't believe those are the arguments they would use or the words they would use to make those arguments or the worldview that they would ascribe to. And that's probably because these women are mouthpieces, not characters to promote a man-hating anti-patriarchal screed. I was embarrassed for everyone involved in this film. Pass on women talking and wait for women making competent film. Next, Elvis, the true life story of one man's desire to travel internationally. And I'm really only half joking. Seriously, that's the third act conflict. Elvis wants an international tour, but his manager doesn't. It's stylish, frenetic, and edited in the ADD style of a Baz Luhrmann film in which not one shot can last longer than three seconds. I'm beginning to think Mr. Luhrmann's family is being held for ransom and he's been trying to tell us through Morse code. The entire film is one giant montage and has all the emotional resonance of a Wikipedia page. A montage is not a movie. But where Elvis struggles with theme and throughline, Triangle of Sadness is all about theme to the extent that it even loses track of its protagonist. There's not exactly a hero's journey as the traditional elements of storytelling like goals or stakes or urgency or even basic conflict aren't introduced until over halfway through the film. And that's because it's not so much a story as it is a means to explore the power dynamics between the haves and the have-nots. Boo capitalism. We see the dynamics of money and relationships, then the dynamics of class on a yacht, and finally, we see that even when marooned on an island, when all the social hierarchies are completely upended, a new class system immediately replaces it with all the old trappings of oppression, exploitation, and the murderous desire to maintain it that is so inherent in the system. It's real thinking man's film with all the sophistication of a scene from Bridesmaids. And while that was broad comedy, this is highbrow because it's skewering rich people. They're covered in pool water, but they're rich. Oh, I guffawed so much I almost spilt my martini. If you don't want to tell an actual story, just write an essay. Maybe it'll get picked up in The New Yorker. Next, Avatar, The Way of Water. 
Okay, I did not see this film. I saw the first Avatar and I thought it was bad. Really bad. So fool me once. And speaking of things I've seen before, that brings us to All Quiet on the Western Front, the movie based on the book All Quiet on the Western Front, which is not to be confused with the 1931 Best Picture movie All Quiet on the Western Front, or the 1979 movie All Quiet on the Western Front, and definitely don't get it confused with the 2019 World War I film 1917, or the 2018 World War I documentary They Shall Not Grow Old. But if you do get it confused with any of that, that would be understandable, as familiar is really the best way to describe this film. It's well shot, it's well acted, it's got some nice moments, particularly in the juxtaposition of the boys dying in the trenches, and the bureaucracy negotiating the end of the conflict, and the cutesy way in which they ended it, which is all true. It's good. But at the end of it, I just felt numb, and not because of the horrors of war, but because every single beat of the film felt well trodden. I've seen this film a thousand times already. And like the Western Front itself, the film makes no advances, and so I'm left more captivated by the pointlessness of the movie than the pointlessness of the war. And speaking of pointless, that brings us to the Best Picture winner, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. I was really excited to watch this film, and perhaps there's a universe in which this film is good, but alas, it is not this one. So basically the plot is this, a middle-aged Chinese immigrant who runs a laundromat is suddenly confronted with the reality of multiverse and the threat of a looming entity that is looking to destroy all universes, and so she must tap into the skills that she has in other universes, which is just martial arts, in order to defeat the villain, which as it turns out is her lesbian daughter. It's zany, it's wild, it's sometimes fun, but ultimately, it's not clever enough. The exposition was clunky, the fight scenes were amateurishly shot, and it doesn't exploit its conceit well enough. Case in point, she reaches into other universes to her other selves to acquire skills which she uses to punch people. It's not very clever. But everything always all the time is even worse thematically. At its root, it's dealing with a problem of nihilism, which naturally comes when you're dealing with multiverses, because if there's an infinite number of universes, then this universe is in no way significant. It is, in fact, infinitely insignificant. And all the things that we might appeal to about living a good and noble life are rendered meaningless. Take morality as an example. In our universe, torturing babies for fun is morally wrong. But if there's an infinite number of universes, then there must be a universe in which torturing babies for fun is morally virtuous. There's no transcendent universe, no realer or truer universe to which we may appeal, and so our morality is not objective. Our morality, then, is meaningless. It's a quirk. It's a particularity of our universe, merely one rendition of morality and an infinite number of differing moral systems. No better, no worse. What we think of morality, then, of real right and wrong, is a total fiction. But if morality is a fiction, then how do we live a good or noble life? How do we weigh our choices in any meaningful sense? We can't. It's all meaningless. And the film acknowledges this. So how does everything, everybody, always deal with the crushing meaninglessness of it all? Just be nice. I kid you not. That was the movie's answer. Yeah, it's all meaningless, but you know, just be nice. That is insufferably stupid. And you should note that in no universe depicted is lesbianism ever morally wrong. Huh. That's weird. And speaking of lesbians, that brings us to Tar. So Tar is an interesting film that's legitimately wrestling with the reality of cancel culture and the struggle of how to separate the art from the artist and whether or not we should. In it, Kate Blanchett plays a renowned conductor who uses her position and power to seduce underlings and mistreats people in pursuit of her personal gratification. In the end, she's cast off as a villain, but not an altogether unsympathetic one, which gives the film some degree of depth. It's not women talking. The women talking version of this would be an abusive, cis, white male who gets his comeuppance. The fact that it's put to a lesbian to one of these protective classes gives it some degree of nuance. And you can interpret that one of two ways. Either it's to show that we're all 
susceptible to this as even the most progressive and noble of us, not just cis white males, can fall to it. Or you could say that the most noble of us are corrupted by internalizing the patriarchy when you rise up through the system. But thematically, it's at least interesting. Unfortunately, its execution is not. My wife fell asleep twice in the movie. Two times. But what you won't fall asleep in is Top Gun Maverick which was cynically nominated for Best Picture in the hopes that audiences might tune into the telecast if they'd at least seen one of the movies. But is Top Gun Maverick any good? It's fine. It's a romp. Tom Cruise does Tom Cruise things, good guys are good guys, bad guys are bad guys, and it doesn't sucker punch you or beat you over the head with wokeism, which is the absolute minimum that people are looking for. Now, is it one of the best 10 films of the year? Maybe. And that's really sad. The first Top Gun, which I think is a better film, would never have been nominated for Best Picture because we used to make films that were popular and great. Top Gun Maverick is fine. It's not a great film. But since we're getting nostalgic, let's talk about Spielberg's The Fablemans, which is a semi-biographical pick about Steven Spielberg. It's more entertaining than I thought it would be, since the film is mostly plotless and self-absorbed. Spielberg is increasingly a director who is lost in nostalgia and looking behind him. It's a bad idea for a movie that was decently executed with a really, really absolutely horrible theme. Selfishness and personal fulfillment are championed as morally virtuous. It's really gross. Which brings us to my begrudging favorite film of the bunch, The Banshees of Inisherin. Like everything always all together, Banshees is also wrestling with meaninglessness. On a small island, trouble begins when out of the blue, Brendan Gleeson no longer wants to be friends with Colin Farrell. Which is understandable. Although Colin is a perfectly nice chap, he is dreadfully dull, and Gleason decides that he is not going to waste one more second with empty, idle talk, which is all Colin has to offer. And instead, Gleason is going to dedicate the rest of his days to his music, to something that will last. But Colin keeps bugging him, and so Gleason starts cutting off his own fingers to demonstrate how much he no longer wants to talk or associate with Colin. Really, it escalates quickly. But what I did find interesting is the way I think the film wrestles with nihilism. This is a small, insignificant island where all there is is idle talk. There's a war in the distance, but they're not a part of it. They have no cause, no purpose. They don't even remember what side they're supposed to be on. And so the central question in this meaningless, purposeless world is, is it more important to be remembered or to be nice? The film mocks both. Gleason makes his argument saying, do you know who we remember for how nice they were in the 17th century? No one. Yeah, we all remember the music of the time. Everyone to a man knows Mozart's name, right? Art means something. Art endures. Art is remembered. Of course, the landing joke of the scene is that Mozart is from the 18th century, not the 17th. So his memory of Mozart, which is so dear to him, is a little foggy. And the notion that he's Mozart or that his fiddle tunes will stand the test of time is a clear delusion. And as the film progresses, these meaningless fights over meaningless lives leads to meaningless violence, like the kind of violence that was happening across their shores. Of course, the film doesn't have a good answer for nihilism, but its solution at least isn't cringe-inducing. And while I have no desire to see that film or any of the nominations ever again, I can firmly say I disliked it the least. High praise. Well, that's all for today. Like, subscribe, rate, review, be as harsh as I am on the Oscar noms, and I'll see you next week for more Appropriate in the Culture.